Well, it's good to be standing up here again. It's been a while. I'm not the guest speaker this week. I'm actually the, the pastor here, and so it's been a few weeks since I've been up here, so I'm, I'm thankful to be back. If you have your Bibles, turn to the, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. This morning, we're going to begin a new series, a new sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we will, Lord willing, between now and the end of this year, finish this, and then we will, we will begin a new, new book next year. But, but Ecclesiastes will occupy us until the end of this, this year. So Ecclesiastes, we're going to actually just be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. So if you don't have a Bible, there, there should be some on the, the pew back in front of you. Uh, if you would like a Bible to take home, we have a, a few in the back that, that if you raise your hand, someone will, will run them to you, but we'd, we'd be glad for you to take those if you don't have a Bible uh, for yourself. So we're beginning Ecclesiastes. If you've never read it before, I think you'll be equally surprised and encouraged as we walk through this book. It's a surprising book, but at the end of the day, it's an encouraging book. But Ecclesiastes is unique among books in the Bible. There's really no other book that's quite like it. In fact, I'd put it in the category of the book of Revelation as, as two very unique books that don't have like books in the canon of Scripture. So it's unique. First, it is, it is one of a group of books called wisdom books. And so it's a wisdom book, along with Proverbs and Job and the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes makes the, the, the canon of wisdom literature. And so it, it's part of that. So it's unique in that it's, it's a, it, part of a small group. And the aim of wisdom literature, of these wisdom books, and they all go about a, a, in, a, in a, different, a bit differently, but... The aim of wisdom books is to ask the question, what does it mean to fear the Lord in the world that the Lord has made? And so that's wisdom. So, so think about the book of Proverbs, all the Proverbs. It's teaching how, how do you fear the Lord in this world? In Job, in the midst of suffering, how do you act? In Song of Songs, in relationship. And so, and so that's, that's the aim of these wisdom books. And so Ecclesiastes, along with these, is a meditation on what it means to be alive in a world that God has made. This is God's world, and, and we need to live in it accordingly. And so what makes wisdom literature a bit different is it, it uses proverbs and pithy sayings, riddles, provocation, question and answer, prose and poetry to force us to look at things from a different angle. And that different angle that Ecclesiastes wants us to see the world from is what makes it unique even among the wisdom books. Because Ecclesiastes, if you just read it, it can come across as dark, gloomy, even depressing, You'll see some of that this morning, but what the author or the preacher, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes is doing is he is intentionally leading us through a process. And so he wants us to follow with him in this, this mental exercise as he leads us to consider this world. And his aim, big picture, is to show us that life in and of itself, even in God's good world with all of its good, for all of its God-given gifts, this world, life in and of itself, is unable to deliver meaning and joy. That's his point, that the life in this world that you're living, though it's in God's good world, and we experience God-given gifts, life itself is unable to deliver meaning and joy. The preacher wants us to know that no single part of God's world can by itself unlock the meaning of life. Life in and of itself is unable to supply the key to the questions Questions like identity, meaning, purpose, value, enjoyment, and destiny. So he wants us to look at the world, and he's going to look at it really intensely and really specifically. He wants you to look at it and say, wow, 
this is a pretty bland place because the place itself is not the place for us to find identity and purpose and meaning. And so this, as we'll see, his constant refrain is that life under the sun, life in this world is vanity. He's going to say it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. He wants us to see that the meaning of life cannot be ascertained solely through experience and observation. And to do that, he must tell us, tell it like it is. He's got to remove those rose-colored glasses with which we're prone to view the world. We look to the world and life itself to provide things that the world and life itself were never meant to give us. And so as we're reading through this, we're all going to know the confusing, harsh realities of this life. And we're going to say, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. And he's going to remind us that this is the world we live in. This is life under the sun because we all often act like we can avoid or control or explain away the reality of life under the sun. And he wants us to, to know that we can't do that. And so we want to live in light of the reality of the world we live in. And so an illustration that, that I think sometime may, may help, may be helpful, uh, but, it, but if you think about when you had young kids, I don't know if girls, this is as common, but, but so our two young boys, when they were young, we'd have building blocks. And when we set up the blocks, Dad would, Daddy would always be asked to, to make a tower and see how high Daddy could make the tower. And so Daddy would work hard. If it was on carpet, it was really hard. It didn't get really high. But if it was a hardwood floor, Daddy could make a pretty tall tower. Well, Daddy would do it, but, but when it was as tall as it could be, every time, the son would do what he did every other time. He would knock it down and say, Daddy, do it again. And so Daddy would do it again. And it maybe would get taller, maybe it wouldn't get that tall, but, but when it was done, he would knock it down. Daddy, do it again. And so if, if I'm going about building the tower thinking what I'm doing here is going to last, I'm doing this so that, so that it is a permanent thing, that I can make a mark here, that I can leave this tower forever, then I'm missing the whole point. The point is that I'm building blocks together. It's not for permanence. It's for enjoying the act of building blocks with my son. And so the point of this passage is that life under the sun, human existence in this world is, is a pattern. Life and existence that occurs in this world occurs within a pattern and a cycle. And that the pattern and cycle that we live in, it's unbreakable. It's unbreakable. You're not going to get out of this cycle. And the point the preacher makes, the thing he wants to know, is that the sooner you realize that you're not going to break this pattern, the sooner you can actually begin to live in this patterned cyclical world under the sun. And so it's going to, knowing the, the, the nature of the world, knowing the nature of life under the sun is going to enable us eventually to live better in this world, in this life we have under the sun. That's going to take him a while to make his case, but if we stay with them, it will be worth the journey that we take when we get to the end. So let's see, let's, let's read together. If you have Ecclesiastes, if you're there in your Bibles, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. So Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11, you can follow along as I read. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, I pray that as we walk through these verses, as we, as we lift our eyes to see this world we live in, as we, as we observe life under the sun, being led by this guide, I pray that you would help us to think rightly about the world and ultimately to see you in light of this world we live in. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so we've got three sections. Those are, those are really happy verses, aren't they? A great way to start your Sunday or your study of Ecclesiastes. Well, the, the three sections we're going to work through, I hope you'll stay with me through this, but we're going to see first the preacher there in verse 1. Then verse 2, the preacher immediately gets to his thesis or his main point. And then in verse, verse 3 through 11, the rest of these verses, the preacher asks a question and then gives his answers. And so verse 3 is, is the question he wants us to, to answer in these verses, but then he leads us in verses 4 through 11 through those answers and how he would answer the question that he posed in verse 3. So let's start there in verse 1, the preacher. Verse 1, the preacher, the words of the preacher. Maybe your translation says teacher. The, the Hebrew word kihalet, the gatherer, the assembler. That, that's the, the person here. Uh, he, he's the one who's gathered his, instruct, his audience and he's instruct, instructing them. He's the one who's going to guide us in this book, the preacher or the teacher. In fact, the name, if you ever wondered, the, the, the name Ecclesiastes comes from the word meaning assembly. And in fact, the New Testament, right, is the, the word ecclesia, the gathering is, is often used for the New Testament. So the Ecclesiastes is just the, the, the gathering. So it's the book that for those who have been gathered or assembled. And, and the preacher is the one who is going to guide us and teach us. So we're all gathered here to hear from the preacher Verse 1 continues, the preacher who is identified as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, for many of us, that's all we need to hear. So you hear that, that descriptor? Clearly, this preacher, though he never clearly identifies himself, saying, this is my name, we all read that, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and we would say, well, that, that seems pretty clearly to point to Solomon. So, so Solomon, we would say, is the author in fact, in, in verse 16 of chapter 1, you don't have to go there, but, but later in chapter 1, he says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So, so that again, that seems to point to Solomon in, in what happened in the, the, the account of the kings. Or later in chapter 2, the preacher will recount his pursuit of great wealth and pleasure and wisdom. And all of these things, again, are in line with the life of Solomon found in 
1 Kings. And then in chapter 12, at the very end of the book, the, the editor who, who's kind of put this together, in fact, the, the editor is verse 1, the words of the preacher. And then in verse 2, is here, here's the preacher starting. There's a, there's a, a closing or a conclusion or an epilogue where, where again, the, the editor is saying, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Again, it seems to point to Solomon as the author. So this is why I think Solomon is most likely the author. Now, I'll just say many scholars disagree, which, again, that's not abnormal. Right? You, you can find a scholar who, who would say that no, no one can know who, who wrote any book, right? So it's not abnormal for scholars to disagree. But in this case, even conservative scholars who would hold to Scripture as, as God's breathed word, even conservative scholars would say, well, maybe it was Solomon, maybe it wasn't. So I'll just leave that there. I think it was Solomon, but at the end of the day, it's either Solomon or someone who's writing under the identity of Solomon, who's writing as one under a, as a Solomonic character, not as in, hey, I'm deceiving you so that you think I'm someone that I'm not, but instead I'm writing from the perspective of the wisest, wealthiest king of all of Israel because I want you to know a point that even the wisest, wealthiest man in all of Israel would, would, would want you to know these conclusions. And so the point remains the same, whether it was Solomon or someone who, who wants us to, to, to receive Solomon-like wisdom, and the point is to show you the vanity of life under the sun, which is his point there, verse 2. So we'll move second to his thesis and the point he makes. He says, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. This is a repetition to increase it. It's like the holy of holies, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. This is vanity of vanities. For emphasis, all is vanity, says the preacher. Or if you have an NIV or a different translation, it might say meaningless meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And this word vanity, hebel, is the Hebrew word, but this word is really important to the teaching of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it occurs 38 times throughout this 12-chapter book. Traditionally, it has been translated as the ESV has it. I think the King James has it also as vanity. And so vanity is how it's often come down to us. But, but recently, in more, more recent translations, it, it, there's a, a wide variety of translation. So maybe it's maybe your, your version says meaningless or absurd or futile or transient or breath. In fact, the, the word itself literally means breath or vapor or mist. And so there, there's a fleetingness, uh, a vanishing of life that he's focusing on. It's like if, if you ever blow out the candle, right? you, you have the smoke that, that, that's there for a second, but then quickly it's gone and there's no trace of it. It's, it's vanishes, or the mist, when, when the sun comes up in the morning, the mist disperses as if it were never there. There's no sign of it. And so his point here is that life is vain, yes, but also that there's a brevity to human life. Life is brief. It's fleeting. It disperses quickly. It's here today and gone tomorrow, which, again, this is not an unbiblical or extra-biblical idea. So think, hear, hear the words of Psalm 39. The psalmist says, Behold, you've made my days a few hand breadth. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Okay, so this is the psalmist is, is expressing the same idea. It's a, a shortness. Life is a mere breath. Hopefully soon we'll be in those days when you wake up in the morning, go outside, and you can see your breath. But you don't see it for a long time, no matter how cold it gets. It's still, it's a breath. It's gone. Until you breathe another breath. Well, Psalm 90, here, Psalm 90, same, same theme. 
Moses in Psalm 90 writes, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or maybe even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone. Right, so there's a brevity, a shortness, and not just the Psalms, the James, James chapter 4. James would write, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town and such and such a place and spend a year here or a year there and trade to make profit. He says, come, you who say that, you say those things that you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And then this is what James asks. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so this is part of the idea that the preacher is wanting to communicate, that your life under the sun is a brief Span, it's short. Life is fleeting. Life under the sun is fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And he's going to build support for that thesis chapter by chapter. And he wants us to recognize the, the nature of life in this world so that we can actually live according to the state of things in this world. So he, he's going to support that argument that life is vanity, that all is vanity, in verses 3 through 11. So look there at verse 3. Because verse 3 is where he asks the question. He has the question that's going to drive the rest of the verses. So there in verse 3, you see the question? He says, what does man gain, gain, that's an important word, gain, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And so he says, what, what's the gain? What's the benefit by all the toil at which man toils under the sun? Now remember, he's just stated his thesis that life is fleeting, it's brief, like a mist, and it's, it's full of transience and change. And to prove that, he's asking this question. He's saying, okay, th th this is, life is, is short, life is vanity. And it's as if he's saying, well, if life is so short, so fleeting, what gain or benefit do we receive from all of our labor, from all of our work? What gain can we have? Well, what's, the, what's the purpose, the, the benefit? It's an economic term, this word gain, translated gain. What, what is the benefit? It's as if he's saying at the end of the day when, when all the gains and losses have been calculated against each other, what do I have in excess? What, what, what's in the black? What's my positive takeaway from all that I've done in this life? This gain refers to the human desire to show profit. I, I want to show something for myself at the end of my life. So, so, so what gain can I have in life under the sun? How can I stand at the end of my life and say, look at what I did? Whether it's financial or otherwise, we, we want to know, he wants to ask, what, what gain is there? At the end of my life, what will be the surplus? What will I live, leave behind that will count as a lasting monument to all my effort? That's the question. What can I do? How can my toil benefit and have lasting impact? And his answer... It's an implied answer, and it's going to come off, it, it comes later, but implicitly here, the answer is nothing. You can't do anything that lasts. That's what he's going to say, right? What can I do to gain? That's his answer. We're going to walk through how he gets there, but, but he, he, he wants us to come to that answer, and he does so by painting a less than romantic description of life under the sun. He paints life under the sun as, as the stark reality that it is. This is not the reality of a Hallmark movie, right? This, this is just life, and sometimes it really stinks, and it's really hard, and he just wants you to say, you're looking to life for these things, and it's not going to provide what you're looking for, 
And he paints this reality in these first verse, this first section by, by focusing on the 10,000-foot view of life in this world. And he shows us that if we're looking to life itself to provide gain or benefit or, or something that lasts, he wants us to see that we're looking for water in an empty well. And so notice how he, how he gets us there. Look at verse 4 as he begins this answer to the question. He says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So you notice the movement there in verse 4. A generation comes and a generation goes. That's movement. Coming and going. Generations, which, which are people. So, so people, people come and people go. Right? This is not like traveling. This is life and death. So a generation dies, but is replaced by another generation that's born. So people die, and they're replaced by new people. And then those new people die, and then they're replaced by new people. And it's the cycle over and over and over. And so we're a generation, and guess what? We're going to die. But guess what? There's still going to be people on this earth, and it's not going to be any of us. Generation comes and generation goes. This is the wave after wave after wave. And it's been that way since Genesis chapter 3. It's not new to us. It's always been. I mean, think about this. Our, our family's expecting a fourth child in a couple months, and there's lots of anticipation and excitement. I don't mean to belittle that anticipation and excitement, but the reality is in 150 years, not one member of my family who is currently alive even the one yet to be born is going to still be alive. Every member of my family who's alive in 150 years are going to be long gone. I mean, just think about that. It's brief. Every one of us will be gone from the earth. This is the pattern that he's observing. I mean, how many of you know your great, great grandmother or father's first and last name? Now, some of you, maybe if you're on Ancestry, I'm looking at a few of you, Maybe you know names, but you don't know them. They're, they're gone. Things they did. And you're, you're going to be the great, great grandparent one day. There's a cyclical pattern. It's been established, and it governs life under the sun. People are born, people are die. And, and if you go about life thinking, I'm going to break out of this pattern, you're missing the whole point. You're not going to break out of this pattern. It's the pattern of life in a fallen world. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can live accordingly. Notice the rest of verse 4. Generations go and come. This is the change, but the earth remains forever. In other words, it's as if the preacher is saying right at the outset, I leave only one thing behind, and that's the earth that I used to live on. And it's remaining right where it was when I first arrived. Only now it's going to be spinning when I'm not on it. And so there's this constancy. The earth doesn't change, but people come and go. Nothing we can do can alter this pattern. We can't gain in the sense that we're able to break out of it or stop this pattern. We can't toil long enough or hard enough to prevent our passing on from this planet. Our lives are but a breath. And this constant, unchanging, always spinning ball that we live on is a stark reminder of that. It's going to be spinning when we're gone, just like it was spinning before we got here. But he continues, look at verse 5, really verse 5 through 8. 
he, he, he continues to, to observe this world, and he looks at examples from nature. So there's three examples from nature and three examples from, from kind of human experience, from senses, human senses. And so he's going to look to the sun and to the wind and to the water in the world, and he's going to look at, at the, the, the talking and hearing and seeing with the, the human senses. But, but first, look there at verse 5. He looks at the sun, even in the apparently static stationary world, even there, there's an endless cycle. So, so he's just said, generations come and go, but the world remains. Well, now let's look at the world because that doesn't even remain. There's constant change there too. First example, verse 5, the sun. The sun rises and the sun sets. And when it sets, you know what the sun does? It hastens back to the place where it rises. I mean, the, the picture is fascinating. It, it, the sun runs its circuit from rising to setting and it just goes back to where it rose at, at the beginning, only to do it again. And so sunrise and sunset, it, it's a different perspective that, that we're, we're asked to view sunrises and sunsets from, right? When we think of sunrise and sunset, they can be some of the most beautiful things that our eyes can ever behold, right? It's a beautiful thing to see the sunrise or the sunset. I mean, even Lamentations 3 would say, the Lord's mercies are new every morning, and so the offer of lamentation says, hey, when I see the sunrise, I know God's mercies are new. Well, that's not the perspective that the preacher wants us to take. From the pe- preacher's perspective, people have always seen sunrises and sunsets. So as pretty as the one you've seen is, it's been seen before. You weren't the only one in the world to ever see a beautiful sunrise or sunset. And, and the reality is, if you're on vacation, say you're at the beach or in the mountains, you have these grandiose plans. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to, I'm going to watch the sunrise. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to go to this spot to watch the sunset if you're on vacation and, and you oversleep on day one. Guess what? You can go back day two because it's going to do it again. If you fall asleep again, day three. Day, as long as you're there, even when you're home from vacation, you can still see the sunrise because it's always going to do it. Always has and it always will. Since the creation of the world, the sun has not stopped rising and setting. I mean, think about this. Maybe this isn't helpful. This was, this was almost shocking to me. Abraham and Moses saw the same sun that we do. Jesus and his disciples saw the same sun that we do rising and setting. Caesar and Napoleon saw the same sun rise and set that we do. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln saw the same sun rise and set that we do. I mean, these are massive figures that span a long period of time, but it's the same sun. Generations come and go and come and go. It rises and it sets, and it rises and it sets, day after day after day. But it's not just the sun that the preacher wants us to see, even parts of nature that appear free from endless circularity. Right? The wind, what in the world is freer than the wind? He wants you to say, no, 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 not so fast. The wind, verse 6, it blows to the south and it goes around to the north. This is in contrast with the sun rising from east to west. Well, now it's the wind coming from north to south. He says it goes around to the north. It blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, it returns as in there's a train track that the wind is always going to go on. It's always going to run within its circuit. So even as free as it appears... It's running its circuit. It goes around and it comes around and it goes around and it comes around, endlessly moving through the world within its prescribed circuits. It's not like there's a a cosmic fan or source. They say, oh, that's where the wind comes from. No, it's just going and going and going. 
That, that's, that's the cycle. That's the pattern. It just blows, and it doesn't stop. It's not just the wind. It's the water. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Think about all the moving waters of the world, streams or tributaries or rivers. They're all flowing to, to one ultimate place, into the ocean. And, and they're constantly, water is constantly flowing through them to the ocean. And yet, oh my goodness, the ocean never overflows. It just keeps, keeps getting filled, but it's never full. Keeps going. Now, we know that there's a water cycle in the process of evaporation, but that's not his point. His point is simply the waters will never stop flowing into the ocean, and the ocean is never going to fill up. Again, he's, he's pointing to the circular pattern, the established pattern of the world that we live in. Nothing's going to change it. We're not going to prevent waters from flowing into the sea. That's just what they do, and that's what they're going to keep on doing. And so the sun and the wind and the waters... They're constantly moving. They're they're constantly toiling, we could say. In fact, they never stop. Yet, the preacher would want us to ask, what do they gain? The sun has been toiling since it was put in the sky. What gain has it from all of its work? Gets to do the same thing over and over and over. It doesn't doesn't get to the point where I've run enough laps. Now I can stop. No, the sun is going to keep on and keep on. There's no gain for the sun or for the wind or for the waters. There's no, their toil doesn't change anything. So why would we as humanity expect to gain from our toil when nothing else works that way in life under the sun? And so their constant movement and toil doesn't make a difference. They just keep on doing what they've always been doing and will keep on doing what they've always been doing. And he continues, it's not just nature. Now he, he turns to, to human experience. In verse 8, verse eight, he says, all things are full of weariness. Like, I, I can't wrap my mind around this, this world. I can't get my mind around, how, how do I control this? How do I, how do I manipulate this life that I have to, to get gain? I don't understand that, and I'm tired just thinking about it. And so he says, it's full of weariness, and, and even no mouth can utter it. And so I could use all the words that I know, I could spend a whole life trying to explain this, and I can't. My words are not enough. It can't be uttered by human words. It escapes us. It's like grasping after wind. It can't be uttered. So, 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 so that, that, that's the mouth, but it's also, verse 8 continues, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And so it's not just the ocean that's never full. It's not just the sun that never stops. It's our ears in our eyes. We can't ever be satisfied with seeing. Our ears are never filled with hearing. Our eyes are never so full of seeing that they stop. We refuse to see. I mean, that just doesn't happen. We're, we're always taking in with our eyes, and we're always longing to see more. It's not like our, our, our eyes are on batteries that need to be charged. Oh, your, your eyesight is low. Charge up. No, you're just going to keep seeing. Just, it's never going to be full. I mean, I thought about this, I mean, in, in our current culture and context, think about the, the, the phenomenon of binge-watching streaming television. Right? We all, we, we want a new series. And so we're asking our friends, what are you watching? What shows are you watching? 
Are they on Netflix or, or Hulu? I, I want to see. I want to know. And so maybe you'll find a good show. And maybe it'll be 10 seasons or 20 seasons. And you'll, you'll spend hours and hours and hours watching. It'll be fun. But when it's over, no one ever says, okay, I'm done. No more. Well, what, what can I watch next? I've got to find something else. Right? We're never satisfied with seeing. We, we always want more and more. At the end of the day, you never say, I'm never going to watch another TV show. I think I've seen enough. Because there's always going to be something else that says, oh, i, I got to see that. And the same with ears. I mean, think about our ears constantly hearing some pleasant things, some unpleasant things. Right? But they're just being filled, filled, filled. But they never are full. They're constantly taking in sound and will never be filled. Life under the sun is repetitive. That's what he wants us to see, these these cycles of repetition over and over and over, whether it's nature, whether it's human experience. And then he closes there this section with verses 9 through 11, where there's probably one of the most well-known phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes, but there, uh, follow along as I read this this conclusion in these last three verses, verse 9, what has been is what will be, And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. That's the phrase. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, is there a thing of which is said? See, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come to be among those who come after us. And so these verses kind of summarize his perspective on this this section of human experience where all participants in this creation, in this drama of creation, and, and we all just pass across the stage that's provided for us. It's here when we show up. It's already, the stage is set. We just show up, we walk across the stage, and then the stage keeps going, and we're off. We're off the stage. And we're relatively insignificant when considered from that perspective. You are not that important. What impact can you really make? What really can we do that hasn't been done before? Generations have come and gone since the creation of mankind, and every generation is wiped away by the sands of time. So no matter how how big or good the sandcastle that you build is, it's eventually going to be washed to nothing. That's, That's human experience. Nothing is really ever new, he says. Now, of course, you can say, well, look at the iPhone. It's new. He's wrong. Look at streaming television, the internet. Look, it's new. That's not his point. Of course there's going to be new inventions, but I think his point is that every new invention is just us trying to do what people have been trying to do forever, communicate or entertain ourselves or, or improve our relationships or dominate the world. Right? It's all been done before. There is actually nothing new. In fact, the only reason that anyone can ever conceive of something being truly new is because there's no remembrance of former things. This is new. Well, if you'd have been alive then, you'd realize it's not new. It's because there's no remembrance of former things. We all think, well, this is new. Well, it's not. It's it's all part of the wash, rinse, repeat cycle. We're all, in the words of up in verse 4, we're a passing generation that will be succeeded by a coming generation. And the things that we do and say and accomplish will be done and said and accomplished by those who come after us, just like what we do, say, and accomplish were done by those who came before us. We're all here today, gone tomorrow, to be remembered really by no one, living a monotonous, repetitious, circular life. That's what he wants us to see. He wants you to feel that, like, oh my goodness, 
why did I come to church this morning? What a gloomy outlook. That's, he wants you to feel that. He wants to show you that life is not in and of itself able to produce gain or benefit. You can't look in this world, in life, and in things in this life to produce purpose or gain or benefit. We'll have to wait a few more weeks before we, we start to get a hint of his answer. Even next week's going to be more exploration in, in human experience showing how, how futile it is. So next week we'll go all the way through the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. And I'll say, hey, here's how I tried to find satisfaction in the answer. I pursued wisdom and pleasure and accomplishment. And he's going to say, none of that works. He does have a point, and we'll get there, but, but I, I do want to, I'll give you the answer here in our second point of application. But just as we close, let me give you two points of application. So the first point of application, you are not that important. You are not that important. Hear the preacher say that. You're not that important, but, but hear me also say, neither am I. We're not that important. This perspective, this aerial view of humanity's existence on this earth, of this, this, this repetitious, vain life, shows us that we really are not as significant as we think we are. Now, obviously, there are other passages, other biblical themes that would, would ascribe extreme importance to humanity. So hear me say that. There are other places, but that's not his point here. He wants you to feel the weight of, you're not that important. He wants you to see the vanity of life under the sun. He wants you to see that this world was turning before you were on it, and it's going to keep turning long after you're gone from it. You're just a, a, a passerby, a passer through. You're not that important. What's more, your toil and your labor and activity during your time here cannot, I repeat it, cannot alter life under the sun. So no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to break out of these patterns. This set cyclical world that we live in, is, is, that's how it is. You're not going to get out of it. You're all going to die. It's just how it is. But realizing that is going to enable us to live differently. You can't break any of the cycles. You can't stop the sun from rising and setting, the wind from blowing, the rivers from flowing. You can't stop the fact that you probably won't be remembered by your great-great-grandchildren or that your body will one day lie lifeless in the ground. You can't stop those. This is life under the sun. And knowing that, now he's not there yet, he's going to get there, but in knowing our insignificance, we can actually enjoy life. And so one commentator summarizes this way. He says, the universe is not designed to contain gods and heroes. I mean, hear that. We live in a world that we all want to be gods and heroes. Right? Our movies are filled with them, and we, we, we communicate that to our kids. You can change the world. The universe is not designed to contain gods and heroes, but mortal beings who accept the limitations that have been set upon their lives and get on with them in quietness and humility. And that, that's, part of the, the, that's part of his aim here. We're not gods or heroes. We can't change the world. We can't really make the kind of difference we think. The reality is, and the reality is that's okay. We're not supposed to be gods and heroes. We're supposed to just live lives under the sun. And he'll talk about more how we, can, how we can maximize our life under the sun because there is purpose. But the second application, this is the answer that, that he's going to get to, second point of application is this, life only makes sense when it's lived in light of God. It only makes sense when it's lived in light of God. So this is going to be in, become increasingly clear throughout this book, but I just I want to make it clear here because I don't want you to all leave here depressed. And we're going to be sad enough because I, the McIntyres are leaving. I don't want to add to that 
right? So, so his point is that life does make sense. Vanity is combated by, by recognizing that we are created to live in God's world in relationship with God. That changes how we pursue life under the sun. Life on earth is intended to have as its creator, as its center, the God who created everything and who holds everything in his hand. So life pursued under the sun, apart from knowledge and relationship with God, the creator can never pursue, can never produce purpose or satisfaction or gain. And so once you see, if you're pursuing life under the sun, apart from God, you're never going to get anything out of it. There is no gain, no matter how hard you work, no matter what you pursue. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is, is, is creating in us a hunger. He's showing the emptiness of life. He wants you to feel depressed as you look at how this world works in order to drive you and drive me to the God who created us and knows us. And so man has the capacity and desire to know how all things and ideas fit together, yet he cannot know it until he comes to know the one who created all things. And so we can only make light, we can only make sense of life under the sun when we come to know the one who created life under the sun. Life in and of itself, even in God's good world, with all its good God-given gifts, is unable to deliver meaning and joy. No single part of God's good world can by itself unlock the meaning of life. Life in and of itself is unable to supply the key to the questions of identity, meaning, purpose, value, enjoyment, and destiny. And so we we're, we're, we're sobered by the preacher, and he wants us to be sobered so that we live differently. He wants us to build blocks, as it were, understanding it's not about permanence. It's not about breaking out of this. It's not about stopping the sun from knocking the blocks down. It's, it's about building the blocks and enjoying the process of building blocks, recognizing it's all going to be knocked down eventually, and that's okay. Let's pray as we close.